Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. lunch, and I know the discussion was probably very interesting, as it was at our table, uh, that before Abdi comes up, or Dr. Kazimpur comes up and, and uh, asks some questions, uh, let me just remind you that there is a, a, another very interesting, as always, SACPA session on May 14th um, on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women in Canada. Will an inquiry be helpful with Dr. Uh, Linda Manyguns and Laurel, Laurel, Lauren Crazybull? Sorry. Um, so that's on May uh, 14th. Uh, Abdi has very kindly said he'll take questions, and I would encourage you to, first of all, make your questions sh- short as you can so we can get as many in. And there's a microphone here uh, that uh, will allow everybody to hear. So please, Abdi, can you come up? Because I'm not going to answer the questions. <laughs> Good afternoon, Doctor. Thank you very much. That was very enjoyable. And I'm going to um, take the privilege of a retired MLA to just uh, make a couple of observations, if you don't mind. I would like to recognize the new MLA for Lethbridge East, who is sitting in the back. Maria? That's okay, Maria. The next time you'll be sitting in the front. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Bridget Pasteur. How's that for ego? <laughs> um, my, um, my observation to you too, sir, is um, I was raised by nuns from kindergarten to grade 12, and that's when they wore the habits. So for me to see, um, and again, it was all based on the modesty of, of the women that were nuns. And so for me to see... Um, Muslims with headdress or, or um, you know, the full, the full, what's the word? I say jalaba, but... Hijab. Yeah, okay. Um, to me, is so normal, but now when I look at the nuns, it certainly is the evolution that you spoke of, and I think that it'll probably take a generation or so to be able to get that melding in and, and the acceptance of... Um, of dress and of customs, so I really, I really enjoyed what you. I guess I don't really have a question on that, or you could maybe make a comment on the time frame that it took for the nuns to start wearing shorter skirts. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I think uh, you're right that it will take time for all these uh, sort of uh, discomfort to to go away. But it is not just the time itself that will cure things. It is the kind of things that will be done uh, during that time. And uh, if, for example, we continue with uh, the kind of things that have been happening in the past two decades in the world, I don't think that having more time will get us any closer to to a better situation. So it is important to acknowledge that a lot of these things will not change overnight, but uh, in order for those to happen maybe in one decade, two decades, three decades from now, we have to start things, uh, start doing things right from now. And uh, that will hopefully uh, open up a lot of opportunities in the future. 
Thank you very much for coming. Happy, uh, my name is Knut Peterson. Uh, can you maybe comment a little bit on, uh, you, you touched upon politics, uh, what political leaders and uh, these people stand for. Could you uh, maybe explain a little bit about the attitudes, for example, either with us or against us, type of attitude uh, from political leaders. Uh, are you, can you maybe touch upon that uh, in Canada, particularly? Yes. Uh, <coughs> Canada is in this uh, very strange situation. From the one hand, we have uh, this legacy of uh, being uh, the first country to adopt multiculturalism. And uh, in the book, I also talk about I, I talk about that Muslim exceptionalism that I mentioned, but there is something called the Canadian exceptionalism as well with regard to how the minorities have uh, felt in the country and how well they have uh, integrated into mainstream society. Uh, we have that legacy, and that's a very positive force. And um, but, but unfortunately, the recent political developments are showing that uh, that legacy is not appreciated, and we are just sort of. It seems that the government is shifting away from that legacy, and is adopting some. Uh, extremist views that at one point George Bush was proposing and it seems that the Americans have realized that those views would not work for them but for some reason or leaders haven't realized that yet so uh, I'm a little worried that if uh, the government continues with the kind of measures that we have seen they have come up with in the past uh, year or so then we are not really going to have a very easy time and that legacy of being the first multicultural society or a country with a multiculturalism policy is not going to help us either. So uh, there is a little bit of mixed bag there, and, and, uh, and that's why it is very crucial to sort of pay close attention to all these small changes that can happen, because in critical moments, a small change can lead to very drastic uh, and can have drastic implications. So it is, I guess, a very crucial point for all of us to be very observant about what is happening happening and try to influence things the best we can. Uh, thank you for your uh, wonderful presentation. And uh, like Bridget, I grew up with uh, Sisters in Habits. And I grew up with many uh, of those sisters and other people saying uh, that if you did that, something negative was going to happen to you. And I think that um, fear-mongering practice is, as you've just said, uh, showing up uh, politically right now. And uh, I pushed back against it when I was a child, and uh, I certainly intend to continue to do that. Uh, but I, I would like uh, to hear any suggestions that you have uh, that we can do a better job of that. Thank you, and congratulations, by the way. One of the things that I was planning to talk about, if we had time, was about the kind of things that uh, can sort of improve the situation and can put us on the, on the right track. So let me just get to some of the slides that I was planning to show you. So you'll be grateful that these are all these slides that I didn't talk about. So, <laughs> so basically... Uh, 
I have I have put this as some sort of perhaps a little too complicated conceptual framework for my for my research, but uh, it's it's pretty simple. I have put multiculturalism as the sort of frame framework for this uh, uh, approach that I'm suggesting here, and uh, this is sort of a response to some of the discourses that they think that the multiculturalism has failed and hasn't been able to sort of uh, improve things like the kind of things that we hear in the Netherlands, in uh, Germany, uh, in France. And uh, therefore, the best way to go forward is to just do away with multiculturalism. I don't think that is the right, right approach and right direction. So we have to have that multiculturalism. But multiculturalism just provides the general environment. Within that environment, and a positive and pleasant environment, but a positive environment for other things to happen. And these other things are the ones that would make the real change. And uh, these other things that I have highlighted in the, in the book and in my research are uh, an increased dialogue and increased interaction and increased contact between, uh, in this case, Muslims and non-Muslims. And uh, when that happens, some sort of miracles uh, get created because uh, the moment that people... Uh, are able to relate to one another on a, on a human level, then they realize how much they have in common, and they realize how uh, wrong are some of the stereotypical images that they are sort of uh, fed by the media and they use on a regular basis. So basically what is inside that frame is nothing but increased interaction, intrigues, increased contact, intrigues, increased dialogue. And what happens when... Uh, we have those. These are just some of the uh, sort of a small subset of some of the stuff that uh, the data that I have used in the book. When the level of contact increases between Muslims and the native-born Canadians, here this is the data from maybe sort of nine years ago, uh, uh, the more contact Canadians, native-born Canadians have with Muslims, the more positive their impression is uh, becomes of, of Islam. And that is the first step towards some sort of mutual understanding and uh, uh, increased dialogue and uh, some sort of friendly and, and peaceful relationship. You can see that the, the rate of increase, increase is quite significant. The people that have never had any contacts with any Muslim, have about maybe 30% of them have a positive impression of Islam. By the time that they have uh, frequent uh, contacts with them, that raises to about 70%. So that is a huge jump. Uh, another one. The number of or the percentage of Canadians that have a positive impression of Arabs. The, the, the surveys that they have used have a series of questions about the views of people about different uh, other groups, and this is one of them. Again, you will see that as they have more contacts with Muslims, the positive views that they have about or the number of people that have positive views will increase. Another one. The uh, in proportion, the percentage of native-born Canadians who think that Muslims uh, have been subjected to discrimination. Uh, 
first of all, the good news is that even those who have never had any contacts with any Muslim, about 65-70% of them are ready to admit that there is discrimination going on against Muslims. But with increased contacts, that number rises to about 80-some percent. So that means that with increased contact and social interaction, uh, all sorts of stereotypes, uh, uh, stereotypical images will shatter and there will be mutual understanding and a dialogue can, can happen. So if there's anything that I can suggest is basically that we should try to think creatively about how we can promote this kind of interactions and this kind of conversations and dialogues. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. I very much appreciate your approach to this issue. Um, I'm a new Canadian, um, and I grew up and worked for many years in Muslim countries in various parts of Africa and Asia. Um, I wonder to what extent you feel that ghettoization is exacerbating the problem and whether Canada whether you know that if Canada is in any way looking to the problems of ghettoization particularly in Britain and in France with which I'm much more familiar than the scene in Canada but before I leave the mic I do hope that either Knud or Susan will give us the opportunity to attend your full presentation. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you, Trevor. Uh, yes, ghettoization is a hugely negative factor in all these processes that we are talking about. Uh, to what extent ghettoization has happened uh, in Canada, uh, when I was doing my, my PhD, my doctoral dissertation was on the neighborhood poverty and ghettoization of uh, low-income people in certain uh, segregated neighborhoods. So ghettoization is happening in Canada. Uh, well, not, not to the extent that we can see in places like the United States and in Europe, but it is happening. It has started happening since the mid-1980s. And uh, secondly, it seems that it is increasingly being associated with, with an ethnic and racial element as well. So we have the ghettoization based on socioeconomic status and then uh, that affiliated and associated with uh, racial minority status. That is a very dangerous thing. And uh, when that happens, basically, it means that all those opportunities for interaction that we are talking about will disappear. So that works exactly opposite to the dynamics that I'm uh, talking about here. The second thing is that when we are thinking about ghettoization, when we are talking about segregation, there is a flip side to this as well, and that is the part that I said sometimes when I uh, give a talk to a Muslim audience, I try to emphasize that. There can be a tendency towards ghettoization among Muslims as well and they can try to segregate themselves. And I have mentioned as one of the implications of my study in the book that, uh, the, for example, the creation of Muslim-only 
schools is not necessarily a very good idea because that basically gives away all these opportunities to interact for Muslim kids to interact with, with others. So ghettoization is something that can happen on both fronts, and it is a very, very destructive force. Uh, my name is Mary Shillington. Thank you very much for coming today and sharing your research with us, even in the small amount of time you have. Uh, as a result of an earlier SACPA session and a Muslim leader from Calgary, um, a committee from our church, McKillop, just, uh, our committee is Justice, Peace, and Social Action, we've come up with the concept of trying to pull, uh, have a kind of a family gathering of people from Muslim, uh, Jewish, uh, Buddhist, different faith stands, uh, as well as the United Church, and talk about what are the important social values and what are the important faith values that we want to share. Now, we're, this is a big project, so we're looking uh, to the fall, but I, there are four of us here from that committee today, so we would be very open to some suggestions you have about how we can make that happen in the best way. Thank you. Uh, actually, uh, one of uh, an, another one of the implications of the study that I have mentioned in the book was uh, a very mild uh, critic of interfaith dialogues, and that was a little surprising to uh, a lot of uh, very well-intentioned people that had put a lot of energy into sort of uh, organizing these kind of initiatives. My my reasoning was that uh, interfaith dialogues can happen as a kind of conference among uh, elite members of a faith community. And uh, they can exchange ideas, they can exchange information, and they can find a lot of commonalities among themselves. But that doesn't automatically translate into uh, realities on the ground. That doesn't automatically translate into a better relationship among the members of the different communities. And in most cases, the people that come, those religious leaders that come to these interfaith uh, initiatives and dialogue and events are the ones that are already open-minded about uh, having that kind of uh, relationship with others. So it doesn't do much for them, and it doesn't necessarily and by itself do much for the communities. So we have to somehow associate that and, and sort of supplement that with something that uh, can involve the communities and the rank-and-file people and people on the streets. So, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, the talk that you were referring to was the one that was given by uh, Mr. Sohraverdi from, from Calgary. And uh, I was very... Uh, uh, pleased to hear at the end of his presentation that he said that the interfaith dialogue is for leaders. Try to arrange a meal together. That would work better for the community. So I have to supplement that. Thank you. Douglas Mitchell. I'm an old Canadian and I've had the good fortune to spend time in the 40s in the Middle East, in Egypt and Jordan and in Yemen. Uh, and then in the uh, 60s in, and 70s in Western Africa, and in the 80s with my wife for two and a half years in Indonesia. And so we have contacted, or I have contacted, uh, quite a variety of Muslims in all those years. And we've always, I've always been struck by the fact, they, uh, and we haven't really touched on that, the characteristics, some of the better characteristics of these various groups, such as honesty, hospitality, and honor. 
And I absolutely agree with this last season's slides you showed us that the more contact that one has, the more one appreciates that, despite the groups of fanatical Muslims who exist in most of these countries. Mm -hmm. uh, I I think one of the uh, sort of maybe general... uh, Implication, maybe maybe a far implication of what I'm talking about here is that, and and I want to sort of highlight that that when I say that uh, there is a need for increased interaction and contacts and sort of uh, dialogues among these people, that doesn't automatically. Well, the general trend is that it will create some sort of positive environment, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it will necessarily create positive and 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 uh, sort of friendly relationship among individuals. In some cases, you can have a sort of interaction with someone and uh, you realize that uh, both of you hate uh, each other's guts. And, <laughs> and that is perfectly normal. But the thing is that the thing that will be different is that then we like or hate someone based on the individual characteristics that they have, not based on some sort of stereotypical, categorical element. And then we are careful not to generalize those. Then uh, I think with increased contacts, then we get to know people enough so that we decide whether we want to like them or hate them as an individual rather than a group. Yeah, my, my name is Joseph Natuk. Uh, I'm, I, we're coming up here for, for lunch this morning. Uh, I said to Charlotte, my wife, that, you know, I really know nothing about Muslim, and I, I, I totally appreciate what you, the, the enlightening, that you enlightened me to do, to understand a little bit more about that. But my question is, uh, it's a two-way street, Right. So what effort does the, the Polish, the Ukrainians, the Muslims have in trying to integrate into Canadian uh, society? I mean, we have a unique culture here about multiculturalism, but the point is, is there, what, what kind of effort is being made mm-hmm. by all those uh, different uh, you know, groups that come into Canada and, and, and are become Canadians? Any opinion on that? Uh, the the things that I mentioned about these new approaches that are coming uh, out of the ver- some very conservative and uh, very devout Muslim uh, circles are basically the kind of things that are the result of the engagement of Muslims with the broader society that they live in. So uh, a lot of Muslims in these Western uh, countries have realized that uh, they are not living there on a temporary basis. They are not living there as uh, some sort of transitional stage in their life. They are there forever, and they are, their children are going to be born there, and they're going to live there. So they have to develop some sort of permanent basis for their lives in these new societies. And the moment that they have realized that that uh, new uh, facet and element in their lives, they have started revising their thinking and the, some of the conventional t- thoughts that they had back in their home countries. And some of those guys that I mentioned here are basically responding to this new need, and they are trying to develop a theological foundation 
and a jurisprudential uh, framework so that Muslims can uh, feel comfortable living in uh, other countries and develop moral obligations towards other uh, the non-Muslim uh, segments of the population, and at the same time remain faithful to their uh, to their religion. So, basically, things are happening, and and uh, we have to remember that uh, when we are talking about Muslims living in uh, Western countries. We're talking, a very, we're talking about a very, very recent phenomenon. So gradually we're getting into second and third generations. And uh, this issue is becoming sort of a reality of life for them. And, and before, this was not the case. So developments are, are happening there. And uh, I think part of the reason that we start hearing sort of different voices in the Muslim community is because of the fact that uh, there are more and more people that they think that the religious leaders that they uh, had, and, and most of these religious leaders were the ones who were trained in Muslim-majority countries and had been sort of exported to other places in order to guide Muslims, they come to the realization that these leaders are out of touch with the realities of life in these new uh, places. So I think there are all sorts of very, very interesting, exciting, positive developments that are happening. Uh, and uh, I'm sure it is just a matter of time before they can be uh, sort of materialized in very, very uh, sort of concrete positions so that they can identify them from, from a distance as well. But for now, it is something that is still boiling in the background, and, and we have to look very closely. And I, you notice, for example, that some of these books that I put on the screen, they were mostly written in Arabic. So an English uh, speaker would not be aware of these developments. But, but they are gradually being translated as well. My name is Klaus Jericho. Uh, Canada is striving to be a, a multicultural society. Uh, although we have very strong divisions in, on ethnic grounds and faith grounds, um, what exactly is integration in multiculturalism? I think I, I said something about that uh, at one level, it is the integration of Canadian beer with falafel and samosa. And that is the part that uh, most people like about multiculturalism and are familiar with. But of course, uh, at the beginning, the idea was that that is pretty much what is multiculturalism. We will get more restaurants and we get uh, more um, celebration and dancing events that we can go to, and that's good. But then they realized that the true multiculturalism cannot survive only on the basis of those. We have to start thinking about the recognition of individuals and their rights, their human rights, and to give them full citizenship. So multiculturalism for me is basically an extension of equality, equality of all individuals on the basis of their human rights. And uh, the unfortunate thing is that uh, we are still thinking in terms of uh, racial uh, concepts and ethnic concepts when it comes to these rights. So we have to find a way to remove all these from our conceptual lenses and look at individuals as equal to every other individual and therefore think about how we can grant them all the human rights that they have. That is, for me, the essence of multiculturalism. So in a sense, multiculturalism is something that will eventually 
uh, erase culture as a part of the dynamics that we are talking about. My name is Ralph Hempsel. I would like to hear your comment on <clears throat> the contribution of uh, Nahid Denshi, mayor of Calgary, to understanding. Great. Thank you so much. That's a wonderful question. Uh, I think uh, Nahid Denshi has been a phenomenon, the fact that he was elected as mayor of Calgary. And uh, he has been very careful to uh, sort of illustrate the point that it is possible that a group of uh, non-Muslim, a city that is known for its uh, political conservative ideas, can go for a Muslim mayor uh, and not because and not think about uh, whether he is Muslim or not. So that is exactly related to the point that I made earlier. If multiculturalism is successful, then we don't see religion, we don't see culture, we don't see ethnicity as the main defining and uh, sort of identity marker uh, of, of an individual. We see them as an individual with ideas and the ideas that we can agree with or disagree with, and if we agree with, then we can uh, be a part of the initiatives or the uh, causes that they are promoting. And I think uh, the election of Nainenshi is basically an example of uh, how things can be if everything is done right. Thank you.